Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now hey everybody just real quick before the show started uh this is steve and i just wanted to let you know for all the latest information on our podcast Hit us up on Twitter at E-I-L-F Movies. That's everything I learned from movies. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. If you're looking for incredible art or maybe gifts for an upcoming uh, birthday or Father's Day, Mother's Day, anything like that, Christmas, uh, you can check out Izzy's art at untidyvenus.etsy.com. You can also find us on all the uh, podcatchers like Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever they're calling it these days, Podcast Addict, uh, basically... Google us, you'll find us, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, on with the show. Everything I learned from movies With a one last plot holes a gratuitous It's time to get busy with your friend Stephen Philip Scheidel is an independent writer, actor, and director who has produced uh, such indie movies as Subject 2 and The Outer Wild, both currently streaming on, on Amazon Prime. He's also an accomplished teacher at the Academy of Art and several other institutions, and as you'll hear, a big fan of movies in general. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Scheidel was kind enough to join us in everything I learned from movies. Where have you been since uh, you're in my class? I was in your class. Let's see, that was my last semester. When oh, did I graduate? Five years ago? So I guess five, yeah, about five years ago. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I uh, didn't have glasses then. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, oh, there she is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't expect you to remember me at all. It was a uh, totally, Kickstarter class for a semester. Yeah, I totally remember you. No, I do. <laughs> You're such a good liar. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, I don't remember your project or what you were pitching, but I remember, uh, I do remember you from class. Yeah, what was your Kickstarter project? Oh, it was the uh, Robo Panda comic series. Oh. Robo Panda versus Zombie Dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, how could that. I forget that? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Like all of my projects at the Academy, it was wildly unprofessional, and all the illustration teachers just sighed and shook their heads. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. And then after you graduated, it all became wildly successful. And I mean, <laughs> no, I we're doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Mr. Chadell, thank you so much for joining yeah, us here on so uh, Everything I Learned from Movies. Um, I guess, I guess, just to start off, if you just want to let us know, like uh, where you grew up, uh, you know, what your family life was like, and uh, kind of how you got started in the industry. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. This is really fun. You know, I, I love doing uh, these sort of all about indie film and just get to know you type interviews and stuff. So thank you. Uh, I appreciate oh, it. Our pleasure. And, um, <laughs> but as far as me goes, you know, a little bit about me. Um, let's see, I was born and raised in Maryland. I'm a Marylander. And so if I talk a little funny, that's probably why, um, you know, it's just, we tend to slur our words over there. But when I grew up, you know, I, I was a huge movie fan. Uh, I didn't know that I wanted to go into movies at all. Um, 
it, but my dad would, I mean, we'd watch movies all the time. And every Saturday morning, you know, before cable, um, we, there was Abbott and Costello and Westerns all day long on Channel 20 was our local station. And so I'd watch every single Abbott and Costello movie and then go into Westerns or some film noir thing that was on. And my dad would always come down and say, oh, that guy was in whatever. This guy was in whatever. And I was like, how do you know this? This is like crazy. But he was absolutely right. And and that's a habit that's just sort of ingrained with me too. It's like now I, eventually there did come a time where I eclipsed him with the film. Like, oh, that guy was in what? And my dad was like, how did you know that? So. <laughs> but um, eventually, you know, I, I always wanted to be a writer. Writing was my thing. And I wanted to be like a novelist, like be Stephen King, where you write all these books and then break into movies that way and then I realized like well if I want to break into movies why not just start there and I realized that when I was in college and uh so I started studying film I went to the University of Michigan and um and when I went to Michigan and I realized I wanted to study film they had some good teachers there but they didn't really have a film program so I moved around a bit a bit I went to UCLA for summer I went to NYU for a summer and I wound up spending my junior year at Hunter College in New York and so I bounced around a lot in college but I started and ended at Michigan, got my film degree from Michigan and film education everywhere else. And then after I graduated, ultimately, I worked in some films and moved to L.A. So that's, that's, big that's blue. the initial start for me. And uh, what were like some of your favorite movies? Obviously, you mentioned the, like the Abbott Costello movies. Were there other movies that, uh, you know, came up when you were a teenager or like while you're going to school where it's like it really influenced you? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, there was a bunch. That was when I was a little kid when I was watching those Abbott and Costello and stuff. But oh, yeah. essentially, like by the time I got into high school, and back when we had video stores, we, uh, friends of mine and I like we get out of school and we just walk up to the video store, browse through Blockbuster, is even before Blockbuster, we had the mom and pop stores, <laughs> and just find whatever caught our eye. And uh, I literally every day would go to the video store and just pick a movie and watch it. A lot of horror, a lot of sci-fi. Um, if it was obscure, uh, I would probably go for it. But there were a few that scared the crap out of me <laughs> just from the picture alone. So I never saw uh, It's Alive. I actually just saw that eventually. So I did see it. The baby in the carriage. Yeah. The baby in the carriage. That's <laughs> I, I, I have a very similar story with uh, probably one of the worst movies ever made, Ghoulies. Because when I was two or three years old, uh, there was a Flying J across the street that had the poster up in their little rental section. It's, you know, a little green monster coming up out of the toilet. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was scary. God, I'm never going to watch that. Yeah. In fact, I don't think I've seen Ghoulies, actually. I know the poster, though. Ooh, scary. It's, well, saying, it's not good. But uh, <laughs> according know. according to Steve's mom, it set him back in potty training like oh, a year. <laughs> that's right. That toilet seat down every single time. Right. Lit and all. Yeah. Right. But then yeah. there were good ones like Chud. Chud was a good one. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Daniel Stern, if I remember correctly, yeah. yeah I think so. <laughs> but like I um, but also we had a single movie house, a theater there, also next to that video store, and now it's like a. They closed it down. It became a blockbuster. Then it became like a track auto, part store or whatever. But um, when it was the theater, I would just go watch whatever was playing there. And when I was a young kid, it was like Charlie Brown movies, and then it became Cronenberg movies, and I was like, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I was at a really impressionable age when Scanners came out, and that was actually my first ever rated R movie. And I like to think I snuck in, but in, now that I'm a doll, I realize oh, they just didn't care. Like <laughs> <laughs> he gave us a dollar, you can watch it. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I, I must have watched that movie like seven or eight times in theater just because of the exploding heads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
it was just so awesome. And then it's funny because I years later, my son, who uh, his first ever R-rated movie, which I didn't even realize was rated R until after I bought the ticket, was Kingsman, and oh, oh. and which is a fun one. I mean, he saw a bunch of movies, and Kingsman's great fun. But uh, when I'm watching, I'm like, God, this is pretty bloody. And I'm like, oh, it's rated R. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then there's the church scene. And, right. Yeah. But they also have a lot of exploding heads in there. Yeah. You know? And so my son and I share that in common. Our first rated R movies were exploding head movies. Heads bloodies. <laughs> <laughs> we're very proud of that. <laughs> Let's see, other things. I mean, I don't know. You name it, I was inspired by it. My dad was a big Western fan, John Wayne and all that stuff. So that, that you know, Magnificent Seven, all those kind of movies really stuck with me. Um, I didn't really watch a lot of classics when I was in high school. I found those when I was in college. But Cronenberg uh, had a big influence on me as a kid. Uh, the Dead Zone was a big thing. Uh, the Fly was a big thing. You know, yeah, any, yeah, anything he did. And when I got into college, David Lynch just seared me for life. And I'm still like, he's, he's one of my top one directors. And actually, as an adult now, I mean, he wasn't around when I was younger, but Bong, you know, who did Parasite. It's just, I've been oh, a fan yeah, of his yeah. for like years now. And I was so thrilled that he won Best Director and Picture and all that stuff. So he's up so well-deserved. Yeah. Uh, so, so it seems like you like the movies with like a very, very unique and uh, a very unique perspective and just kind of different from from other movies out there. But that is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, you know, I think that is fair. Yeah. And it, it's I don't know. I As I eventually started to make movies, in fact, later when we talk about it, I, I'll talk about the story. But somebody asked me when Subject 2 movie came out of Sundance, they go, so tell me, what kind of filmmaker are you? I'm like, I have no idea. I don't know. But a lot of people were asking me that. And eventually I started like looking a lot more like what influences me? What do I go for? I started more consciously thinking about it. And definitely people like David Lynch or Bong or Cronenberg, uh, I'm sure there are others too that are just escaping me. They really just spoke to me about some kind of unique and personal spin that they put on their work. It may be twisted. It may not be. Usually for me, there's like some kind of weird perverse humor in there. That's one thing that Parasite does so well. <laughs> and, um, you know, so there's something about that that sticks with me. Um, but they also, there's a love of, even when it gets horror, you know, there's some love of humanity in there. And I was a huge, I mean, everything I read when I was younger was Stephen King. And that still holds true to this day. And as horror driven as he is, there's still a love of humanity in there and uh, that's what makes it horrific when when you know when it works so that kind of thing i think a, a human touch and a personal quirk thrown into the work is probably what attracts me and that's why maximum overdrive is the greatest movie ever made yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let them handle it from start to finish you know right, there you go absolutely from parasite to maximum overdrive that totally works <laughs> And let's not forget Chud. That's not Stephen King, but you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, all right. So, all right. So you you graduate from college. You got your your films stuff going on. What's the process like? You're you're writing, or did you already have like projects you wanted to do coming out of college? Or? Well, actually, it's interesting. Uh, when I was in college, I didn't think about directing at all. I was I just wanted to be a screenwriter. That was all I wanted to be. And I, and I and actually, when I was in college at Michigan, my senior year, I actually won, uh, well, not won, I was a finalist in this national competition that doesn't exist anymore, but it was like this big deal. And um, I wrote a movie, it was actually, I wrote it my junior year called Dear Bruno about a boy, a college boy who writes letters home to his dog. 
and um and it was just fun little romantic comedy and that made me a finalist in this competition where before i knew it every single studio was calling me i was like whoa Ooh. i mean it was like crazy and i've never been to la at this point you know i'm an east coaster living in michigan and um, I didn't know anything about the industry at all other than the Oscars. And suddenly everyone's calling me and I just assumed this is the way it's done. You know, you, you write something and people call you and that's great because you wrote something and there you go. Mm-hmm. And um, I uh, eventually moved to, well, I, I worked a little in the industry first, but I did move to LA and I was so excited about all these people calling me that I quickly wrote another script, which was total crap. It, it was just horrible. <laughs> it, was, it was just bad. But um, they stopped calling me. <laughs> so I was like, oh, hmm, maybe this is how the industry worked. And so I, I was just trying to figure it out as I went. But ultimately, when I graduated from school, I moved back home to Maryland. Um, I knew one person that worked in the industry, and she actually worked as a location manager for commercials. And that's all I knew. And so, and she got me a job. And ironically, it's just the timing was nice. Uh, she happened to start working on a movie, uh, The Exorcist 3. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my first job was I was a PA on The Exorcist 3. She got me a job on that. Nice. Yeah, George C. Scott, Brad Dorff. That's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. And those shears, you know, the famous scene where they got the head. Well, I got to carry those around. It was really cool. (laughs) (laughs) He's a celebrity. (laughs) And and I got to say, I really love, I mean, here it is 30 years later. And the movie itself isn't that memorable, but everyone remembers that one famous scene. Then it's one of the scariest scenes and it's really effectively done. And it just, every now and then people say, oh yeah, that scene from The Exorcist 3. And it's like, I feel, I I remember where I was standing behind the camera when they shot that. You know, it's just, it felt really cool. So Exorcist Three is actually our favorite Exorcist. Oh, well, really? the, the first ones. I mean, you you were saying that. that you felt like the first, like you've just seen the first one so many times that it's sort of. I don't know. He he was <laughs> well, saying not that long ago how much like he's like I think that might be my favorite one because yeah. I've just seen the first one so much that you don't see it anymore and i just yeah. love the third one yeah yeah i mean brad dorf's performance is pretty good and george c scott oh, i mean you always know, amazing i can watch him play with dolphins for two hours wait you did it's Dave <laughs> <Dolphin>. <laughs> that's right he played with dolphins <laughs> and then tried to kill the president no uh the dolphin tried to click kill yeah, the president yeah george c. Scott a party he didn't come Oh, no, but it was funny because like he was walking to his trailer or whatever and we just had a cast party or a crew party or whatever and so i'm just we had little flyers that we're handing out and then you go hey mr scott want to come and he just looked at me like and then he walked on <laughs> he's like he was a nice guy but you know i was punk ass kid and you know <laughs> um but anyway, so after that, I, I, we got endless stories about exercise, I could tell. But um, <laughs> I was just working on odd jobs um, on the East Coast. I was in Maryland, you know, because they were shooting in Georgetown. They went down to, I was only going to work on that for about a month, and then they moved to North Carolina. But I followed them there, and they said, look, I'm already working on there. Just hire me as a local in North Carolina. And they did. So I stayed on that whole film, and then I wound up working on someone from that movie got a job on tales from the dark side, the movie. Oh, yeah. So that was my next job. And that was awesome. And ironically, <laughs> um, my wife now, you know, who I didn't know back then when I first started dating her, she doesn't like horror movies. She's not a fan at all, but she goes, there was this one horror movie I was watching. And I remember thinking, God, the set on this was really cool. They had gargoyles. I'm like, 
are you talking about Tales from the Dark Side? And she was, and it turns out I was a set dresser on that movie. So she was attracted to the stuff that I was working on. Nice. <laughs> so that was sort of cool. But around the time, that was in New York, and I was, uh, so I was bouncing around a lot. And after that movie, it's like, okay, I, I had odd jobs. I worked a day on Silence of the Lambs. I worked a day on Avalon, you know, stuff like that, just as a day PA. And um, I, got, I just got to move to LA and start pursuing it. So I moved to LA and started looking for work there. And that was like that weird interim about a year or so after college that I was doing all that stuff. So, um, yes. excellent. Yeah. And then, from and the then uh, I, well, I guess, uh, the, the the first film I know about is the Far From Brismark, and that's in 1999. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, there, so. Yeah, I'm talking, so right now, what I was just talking about was probably around 89, 90, yeah, yeah. like years before that. And then after that, I was just looking for any kind of work, you know, and I was, as I'm trying to write my screenplays, I was looking for production work just to learn. And um, I wound up getting a job at a reality-based TV company before reality-based was a thing. And they made stunt shows. And so, in fact, this company is still around. They're called GRB Entertainment. And they've been around for years. And they were brand new when I first started working for them. Here I was like 22 or something. And I'm like producing stunts, traveling around the country and jumping trucks over hotels. You know, just weird stuff. <laughs> and that was very fun. Um, but I was working for them for a few years. And I realized I was getting pretty entrenched in the reality-based world. But that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to make movies. And so I wound up um, uh, quitting. I left them and I was, I found some other odd jobs. I worked on the movie, The Temp, if you've heard of that. Timothy Hutton. Yeah, it's got Timothy Hutton in it and um, Faye Dunaway. Um, Yeah, Laura Flynn Boyle was in it. Um, So, and I was working on that on the Paramount lot. So that was fun because I got to go on the studio and stuff like that. Um, Nice walk around and you see star trek people everywhere in makeup because they were working on next generation so it's like oh, oh klingon how you doing are you gonna eat that you know <laughs> <Just> sort of, <laughs> uh, um but then i i was bouncing around and not knowing like what had no security at all i was thinking well maybe i should go back to film school because i can go into debt and meet a lot of people and stuff like that and <laughs> yeah. um i apply i got into the usc peter stark program for producing so i was really excited about that and i paid my deposit but then for that summer, before we started, um, I got a job working as an assistant to a director, uh, John Emil. And at the time, like, I didn't really want to work for any directors. I didn't want to be a director. And every director I'd ever been exposed to, I just didn't have a good impression of them. They were either assholes or just incompetent or stressed out or in over their head or whatever. I just had a negative impression of directing. But I worked for him on a movie called Mr. Jones. Um, with Richard Gere and he was a really nice guy like a super nice guy and everyone around him was super nice it was like opposite whatever my own sort of impression my own experience gave him and I even asked him I go um so why is it that you're so nice (laughs) and and, what's your game yeah what 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 do you want you know and (laughs) he gave me some good advice and something that I live to to this day he goes you know, he just likes to foster a mentality where if you if he doesn't want to work with some, if he doesn't want to have dinner with someone, he won't work with them. And mm-hmm. it's a really good, and I it, I took that to heart. It just worked. And anyway, um, that job was supposed to be for six weeks, and then I was going to go back to school. But he didn't. He knew I didn't really want to go. So he I wound up talking with him, and or he talked with me, 
and we realized, okay, I'm not going to go to school. So I never went to USC. Um, and I wound up staying working with him and I stayed with him for about six years. Oh, wow. oh nice. So that was like the best, you know, I was in my mid twenties. I was at a very impressionable age. He was a super guy, still is a super guy. And, um, I had a great relationship with him and, uh, through him, I worked on, I learned much more about production in the studio way. I learned how to direct through him just by osmosis from what I could pick up. I worked on copycat, um, the man who knew too little, um, touched on development of movies like Simply Irresistible and um, Entrapment. I was a little bit involved in that, but then I, I ultimately, when he started Entrapment is when I left. So I didn't really work on Entrapment at all. It was just in the very beginning phases of it when I left. And it was after I left working with him that I decided, oh, maybe I should try directing. And I got far from Bismarck off the ground. Nice. And, it, and it's a murder mystery comedy kind of thing. Like, I, I've been seeing it, but it's like inspired by like Clue or something. Yeah, there's only maybe four people that have seen this movie. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so hunt it down. <laughs> but it, it was, it was a murder mystery comedy uh, and it was fun. I mean, I loved making it. It was great fun making it. It was definitely a first film. Like it doesn't really work. Uh, there might be some clips somewhere online or something, but um, some of it was sort of funny. I haven't seen it in 20 years or so, but um, it was about an actor, about an actor who gets killed at a Hollywood party and nobody cares. And so <laughs> it was like a spoof on Hollywood. Every character was like a Hollywood archetype. You had the jock, you had the dits, you had the, uh, the uh, gangsta, you had the nerd, you know, stuff like that. And, um, and it was fun. I mean, we just, Shot it in a couple of weeks, and it was one night in a murder mystery, and and just had a really fun time. Um, the movie ultimately didn't go anywhere. Um, and when I was looking for distribution for that, which uh, you know, I, I think I sold it to like Mexican pay TV, <laughs> you know, or you know, some random places like that. My fiance, now wife at the time, got a job up in the Bay Area. And so that's what brought me up to San Francisco, where I've been since like 2000. I'm going to look up real quick and see if far from Bismarck, because you never know, like, who buys those things. <laughs> and seriously, you know, I mean, it's such an obscure title. Um, you know, I teach now. And ironically, one of the people I'm teaching in high school is the son of a friend of mine who has a VHS copy of Far From Bismarck. So he's seen oh, it. Oh, wow. And so he actually likes it. So that's, that's um, <laughs> so it was like, wait, you're learning from the Philip Chadell? <laughs> <laughs> and um, what's it called? So, so with that, around that time, now I moved to San Francisco. I never thought I would leave LA, um, but suddenly I did. And I love LA. I, I, I've always been a fan of LA, so I, I missed it. But then I was like looking for work up here. And eventually I got a job working in interactive television at, place called tech tv and um tech tv doesn't exist anymore but it was a tech station that eventually became g4 and uh oh, okay yeah. so when tech tv folded and or they sold it and be, it became g4 i was out of work and i was realizing my friend dean who was in far from bismarck um uh him and i were hanging out and we're like okay what are we going to do we got to get a movie off the ground again we got to get back into the game and let's just make something and so we decided to make a short film, use that as a calling card and trying to figure out how to make it interesting. And this ultimately evolved into a feature film idea. And that was subject two. And so the two of us, we realized 
one thing that we wanted to do was make like a genre movie that was marketable. And, um, but also how can we do this sort of cabin in the woods type story? Cause we had no money, um, but make it stand out from others. And so Dean is from Aspen, Colorado. And he realized that he could probably have access to this, these bunch of huts on top of Aspen mountain that nobody has access to because they're really meant for cross-country skiers. You're not supposed to take technology up there, like no snowmobiles, that kind of thing. But his family is like really well entrenched in Aspen. So he thought he might, and his grandfather built these huts actually. Like that's how entrenched they are. (laughs) So, um, so Aspen owns them, but he thought he'd be able to shoot there. And we realized like if we could shoot in you know, on Aspen Mountain in the middle of winter, just the scenery alone would be astonishing. That would separate things. That would, That's instant production value. So based on that, we said, okay. And so he, he went to work getting permission and I went to work figuring out a story. And um, what happened was that was in, it was November 1st that we decided to do this, not knowing that it was going to be a feature at this point. It was just November 1st, we had our first discussion. And by February 15th, so just three and a half months later we're done shooting wow wow. it was insane and it was like everything about that process was just nuts we we wound up shooting in a cabin with no electricity no running water snow literally up to your waist um you had to take this the ski lift up to the mountain and then a two-hour snowmobile ride to get to the cabin it was awesome (laughs) <laughs> I was say. <laughs> yeah, say we, I, I grew up in Utah and so it's you like know oh yeah Aspen like oh yeah I know I know that environment <laughs> yeah so there you go and so and if we had more time to prep it like we probably wouldn't have done it it's just it was impossible but it was just yeah. adrenaline that carried us through and even like the week before we started shooting we had a cabin that we were going to shoot it at but a landslide you know an avalanche you know sort of landed on the cabin so that ruled that out oh wow and so really quickly we found another cabin and we found like you had to get permission to take our snowmobiles through everyone's property to get there and, you know, just crazy stuff. And, um, but then we, we shot the movie and then I spent the rest of the year sort of editing it. And um, suddenly before we knew it, we got into Sundance, which is just like crazy because this, even people that worked at Sundance was like, how did you get in? I'm like, thanks. <laughs> I, was like, I know some people who know some people who, Right, but because oh, did he not mention that his uncle was Robert Rifford? No, Uh, (laughs) I forgot to mention that. (laughs) Um, But yeah, just uh, it just happened to get in, and that sort of changed everything. So yeah, Subject Two is actually on uh, Amazon Prime. I I saw the other day, so it's uh, it's on the queue. I got to check it out. (laughs) There you go. Give it a watch. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right. So so. How was the Sundance experience? Like being a you know a director and writer and all that. How I, I haven't been to Sundance, but I've heard kind of mixed things about people. You grew up what forty minutes from? Oh it? yeah, yeah. Like we're forty oh. minutes from it right now. But yeah, <laughs> funny. It's funny. Sundance is great. You know, when I went, you know, it, it always had the mystique of there, and I had never been before. You know, I, I always told myself, like, well, I'll only go if I have a movie there. And that's such a stupid, arrogant thing to say, <laughs> you know. And it turns out, well, wow, I had a movie there. So I went. It was just <laughs> Um But once I was there, and then after I was there, well, I'll only go back if I have another movie again. Because I'll, 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 And that was a stupid thing to say. I just never learned. It was just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but as a filmmaker, in the years since, I have gone back many times. And I love Sundance as a fan. 
as a business person, as everything. Even if you just go to watch the movies, the sheer energy alone is just awesome. But as far as my first time going, and as a filmmaker, no less, um, it was you know obviously wonderful. I mean, it's so it's the most stressful time because all the pressure not everyone's in this boat because some of these films have already sold but we're like we have to get our money back we have to figure this out you know and we have to sell this thing somehow and it's all new to us so we're having all the pomp and circumstance of all the parties and all the high brow schmoozing and all this great press attention and all this kind of stuff and we opened uh we were the first midnight movie there so we're the opening night midnight movie uh, film. I mean, there's a few of them. We, I mean, others open in other theaters, but we had that opening slot at the Egyptian Theater, which is the place to go. Yeah, That's where Blair yeah. Witch went. And, you know, it was just like, wow, this is just crazy. And um, I'm just soaking it in. And um, highly stressful, highly fun, just a whirlwind of activity. It was the, uh, the most wonderful but stressful time of the light of, of everything. It turns out we did manage to sell the film. You know, we didn't sell it at the festival. We sold it to someone who saw it at the festival. A couple of weeks later, we closed the deal and we, we sold it and it was great. And before you knew it, you know, through this process, we wound up on Blockbuster, you know, they, were, they had a big output deal with Blockbuster back in the day. And so you can walk into any Blockbuster in the country, you see a wall of our movie. It was just crazy. This little, tiny, little movie really did make it big. It was the big brass ring of that everyone dreams about that never happens. And to this day, you know, like when I talk to other filmmakers or whatever, and they're like, how do you get into Sundance and stuff? It's like, you know, all the politicking and all this kind of stuff, all this stuff is very important, but we didn't do it. And we literally are the exception to everything that everybody always says. So I knew that at the time, like I knew that we were lucky, but I also, and I, it totally surprised me. I never had Sundance really on my radar. You know, I just submit because of course you're going to submit, but then suddenly we're in and it took me a while to realize, oh, this is a Sundance worthy film. This is a good film. And, um, and it worked. But that said, through this whole process, I'm really thrilled that I had the failed process of Far From Bismarck before it. And my failed process, I mean, making the film was great. I had a wonderful experience in the film. It ultimately only failed just because it didn't go anywhere. And the movie itself was flawed. It's not that great of a film. You know, it's definitely a first film. And I'm very proud of it, but it was what it was. But without that, if this was my first film, like so many, and I was in my mid, how old was I? I don't even know. how uh, Early 30s, maybe? Yeah, uh, somewhere in my 30s. <laughs> and um, maybe late 30s, actually. And you know, somewhere in there, if I wasn't that age and if this wasn't, if this was my first film, I would have been like, so head up my ass. <laughs> and I, I mean, I was looking at some of the younger successes and there's including not just filmmakers, but the, the young execs or the young agents or whatever, you just see their heads are so far up their ass. And, um, and also when we got in before Sundance, actually the whole whirlwind isn't just the festival. It's from the time you hear about getting in from like December 1st or whatever through mid to late January when the festival is over. Those two months, it's just, it feels like a hundred years. There's so much that you do there, especially because you're, you got to get a sales agent. You got to get your materials together. You got to do the rounds and do the press and all this kind of stuff. There's so much stuff to do that we're learning as we go on the fly. And like when I found out I got into Sundance, I actually found out from a sales agent. So a sales agent calls me and I'm living up in the Bay Area and a sales agent calls me and goes, congratulations, you're about to get into Sundance. 
And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> just give me a heads up so you can act surprised when you get yeah, the yeah, cool. yeah. but you know he talked to me for hours like literally a couple hours to get to know my story and just tell me what's going on and you know he had the list from Sundance because they were a major sales agent that reps a lot of people and so he wanted to get the deal and one of the benefits being so, for them being so dialed in was that they get the advanced list I said oh okay Sure enough, a couple hours after he hung up, Sundance called me and they said, congratulations. I'm like, yay! <laughs> hey. and, um, and then one, a few days happened before it goes public and then it went public and literally my phone is ringing off the hook. Like 24 hours a day. I mean, agents were calling me at 3 a.m. You know, stuff like that. And at first I'm like, wow, this is great. All these people love me. It's like, they don't know me. That's why they're calling me. Yeah. You know, it's like well, see if you're that new wunderkind they've been hearing about you right know? <laughs> and it's their job to know everything about any sundance movie and they know most of the films like 98 percent of the films they know everything about it before any announcements are made because they've been tracking them we were so far off the radar you know that we, there was nobody heard of us so they're like it's their job to know so they're freaking out and you could tell and this is where my experience working with john came in and just working in the industry before it came in it was really helpful because everyone blows so much smoke, you know, where they're like, Oh my God, everyone's talking about your film. It's so good. I'd love to see it. I got to admit, I haven't seen it, but I've heard everyone talking about it. I'm like, you're lying because it's still sitting on my computer. I'm not done editing this thing yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nobody has seen it. And, um, and so, but then there's other people like, I know nothing about your film. Please tell me about it. They're just open and honest. And sure enough, when you meet these people, the same people that are blowing smoke, that first impression is absolutely accurate. And then the same people that are just honest and just say, look, I don't know anything about you. Can you tell me about yourself? And they're not pumping up their own selves. They're just saying what they do. Okay, those are the cool people. And I, and it worked out that way. And they wound up being my sales agents and whatever. And it moved on from there. Yeah. And then you're on every shelf and every blockbuster across the country. I uh, just raking in the dough i assume you know you, you, you just beat sundance no well, <laughs> actually, i conquered it that's right yeah. i won sundance no it's, it's really fascinating because every film has its own story whether they're in sundance or not you know every yeah. film usually especially for beginners the idea is how can i ever get the financing for this thing and then once they do it's like how can i ever get this thing made and then there's a story behind that and then once it's made, if it's any, I mean, most of them just sit on the shelves or whatever, you know, or they get released in some obscure way. Um, but then it's like, how can I get into the right festivals or how can I sell? There's always a different question to ask. And there's always a giant story behind all of them. I was fortunate enough with that film to have wonderful stories happen by circumstance. And I am well aware of how rare this is, especially now. I mean, we're now with digital stuff because this is, we shot digitally, but this is before digital filmmaking was a thing. You know, we, we shot on 720p, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's before HD and all that kind of stuff. And um, I, say, I think that's what we're, we're recording in right now. <laughs> I know. I, I think the Zoom has got better resolution than our film. But our film, it actually holds up really well. We had a great DP. But technically, it was just interesting. So um, the idea, oh, we were on top of Aspen Mountain shooting this thing. And I remember joking around saying, yeah, we'll get into Sundance. And But I knew that if we got into Sundance, it would only be as a midnight movie because we didn't have the star power or anything. And it's a horror movie. So, you know, it, it fits the genre. So we'd be a midnight movie if we got into Sundance. But I also knew that there was only eight midnight movies 
and half of them would be like sex comedies or music documentaries. So there's about four horror movies that might be, or sci-fi movies that could work as a midnight movie on any given year. So out of whatever, 5,000 entries, do the math and you see four movies out of 5,000 entries, there's no way I'm getting it. But so I, it was like a quarter of a percent chance or whatever it was. Yeah. And then a year later, we beat those odds. So you can't depend on that, but it, it just, it is what it is. So. Yeah, and then, so then immediately after it's like, all right, cool. We got to do another one, right? Right. And that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> well, you know, cause everyone says, you know, it's, it's just fascinating because there's so many different stories to go with this, but like, First of all, the, the people I made the movie with were Dean Stapleton and Christian Oliver, and they're two of my dearest friends. And the three of us had met originally when I was living in L.A. We took an acting workshop together. And I, as a writer, took an acting workshop just to learn what acting was all about. And I was going because a friend of mine wanted to take it. Turns out she didn't stay on, but I did. And I stayed in that acting workshop for about seven years. Oh, and wow. so I really I learned so much about directing and acting and everything. Because as a writer, I would approach things from an intellectual standpoint, like structure, and this is what a character is, because I planted this seed earlier, and all that kind of bullshit. <laughs> um, um, but as, a, as I learned, eventually, acting. And I never pursued acting. Um, I enjoy it, but I, I don't do it now. I haven't done it in years. But like back then, I was doing it every week as part of this cold reading workshop where the, uh, Dennis Kelly's the guy that ran it. He would give us a scene, pair us up with somebody. We had about 15 minutes to get it, get it memorized or thought. And then we go perform it and we're expected to be performance level. It was a you know cold reading. And eventually I got the hang of it and it was just awesome. And um, it was like my therapy to go to. And um, Dean and Christian, I met them through that and we bonded and ultimately we made this movie together. So after subject two, the three of us you know, call ourselves the knuckleheads, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're like, yeah, we got to do another. And I wrote a prequel called subject one. Um, mm-hmm. Ultimately it's written, it's ready to go. We just couldn't get it off the ground. And we have a subject three planned as well. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like, we have a trilogy planned. Yeah. So you have to have the trilogy. <laughs> oh, totally. And you know, subject two is a Frankenstein story. So basically, and it's mainly about the, the monster, the Frankenstein creation. And subject one was more about the doctor. And subject three was more about the bride of Frankenstein. It was, it was going with that kind of a connecting thread there. But, you know, after Sundance, everyone's calling. And, and I can get a lot of meetings, you know. I got a manager. I got, you know, all these different people asking about me and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and ultimately, there's a lot of meeting, a lot of glad handing. And in our case, I mean, sometimes it does lead to something. In our case, it didn't lead to anything direct. Um I did get a bunch of writing jobs after that, some small things like a rewrite there, develop this with this producer here, this kind of stuff. So there were some things that happened. Um, they didn't get made either, but there was some work involved. And then years pass and we're like, okay, it's just not happening. That doesn't, you know, and also I'm not living in LA at the time. So I didn't have the daily feed, you know, to go with around the time I started teaching the Academy of Art as well after Sundance, a couple of years after is when I started teaching there. And um, so I was, you know, active in the local field. Industry was changing because that Sundance was in 06. And in 08, you had the recession. Yeah. Everything changed. So a lot of, and there were a bunch of people that I think without the recession might, maybe something could have happened with them, but then they went out of business or whatever. Video folded because streaming started. 
you know, and, and, and the recessions hit as well. So there was a lot of change going on around that time. And, uh, you know, obviously people were still making movies, but the whole dynamic was entirely different. And I wasn't able to capitalize on that. Around that time, though, was when Kickstarter happened, Indiegogo happened, you know, all this crowdsourcing stuff. It was like branded as not just those sites, but there was this world of independent filmmaking changing. So is independent film distribution. And I got really into the idea of being a self distributor. I'm already a writer, director, editor, and producer with these other, with my friends. So it's like, well, now we need to be a marketer distributor as well. And this was an opportunity to do such things. And it was very exciting. And, um, and I tried out Kickstarter mainly because when Kickstarter was brand new, someone I knew from back in the copycat days, she was a PA on copycat when I was working mm-hmm. on it. Now she was trying to direct something herself and she raised over a hundred thousand dollars on Kickstarter for her film called IMI. And it's a beautiful film, but at the time she was just developing it. Kickstarter was brand new and she hit the mother load with it. And so I was inspired by her and I met with her and I talked, it's like, so what did you do? And, you know, she gave me a lot of great tips and um, I said, well, you know what, let me try it. And I try, I did Kickstarter for a short film. You know, so I wasn't trying to raise a hundred thousand dollars. And ultimately I raised about, I want to say 13, somewhere around there, just about 13,000 for a short film called Till Death. And, um, and it was great. I mean, it totally worked. I loved the, the crowdfunding experience. I just thought connecting with this audience in a way that I never would have imagined where you, you, cause normally you make a movie, you show it to a theater and you never hear from people, you know, but here we're hearing from people while we're making it and including people that were donating. Cause they saw the pitch video. And I, of course I sent it to my friends and I tried to do my social media push and all this stuff back when social media was still fairly new, you know, it's <laughs> like people weren't as well versed as they are now. And um, strangers would, I mean, it always shocked me when a stranger would donate to my movie. And there was one stranger, I was like, the goal was, I think, 10,000. Mm-hmm. And I was around 9,500 stressing. I'm like, oh my God, I need $500. How am I ever going to get this? And then I get an email from a stranger, you know, who says, congratulations, you're now funded. I'm like, what are you talking about? He put in $1,000. Nice. And I'm like, what's up? So I called him. I'm like, Why? <laughs> uh, uh, thank you but thank why? you <laughs> are you gonna take this back what's going on but you know he was just he responded to the pitch he liked it he was in a position where he wants to help out filmmakers and stuff and to this day we're still friends you know and this oh, is years ago so you know so it's just this connection i'm of course i'm happy for the money but i hardly remember the money i mean i remember that i guess but <laughs> but you know I mean, we developed a friendship and he was some guy in london he's an american living in london and uh, in the year since, like a couple of years ago, I was in London. So I got to see him. He was in yeah. San Francisco. He came to visit, you know, so it's like <laughs> you, you make friends this way. And I think like, this is what filmmaking should all be about. This nice. is the way. But ultimately, that great revolution of indie film distribution didn't really pan out, you know, and I do think I don't think it's dead. There's still options, but there's a lot of upstart companies that have since gone under. You know, the marketing world really is too hard to do on your own or a small group. You need you know, marketing professionals and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's a, it's an industry for a reason. And um, so there you go. So that, so I was, I was trying to make a variety of different projects, really capitalizing on the self and self distribution type approach. Maybe someday I will, but right now that didn't happen. 
Nice. Well, you mentioned uh, teaching at the academy. Uh, was it just Kickstarter classes or, or like what, what kind of subjects? That's the class I took from you yeah, was the uh, yeah. Kickstarter and crowdfunding class, which to this day is like one of the greatest classes. I got the most amount, like was not part of my particular curriculum and I would recommend it to anybody at any time if, if it were still going, but I that's, have heard you've moved on. Well, that's awesome. The class is actually is still going. And also I wrote that class. So thank you very much. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I did my, uh, my four years, I got my degree in four years. I, and I'm, I'm sure, as you know, that's a lot of kick and butt at the Academy. And that is one of the most memorable classes. Like I've got all of my notes. I, yeah. I refer to it regularly. That's awesome. No, when I first started there, it was a little after the Sundance experience about a year or two after that. And um, I, w- I went, went there to teach. They didn't have crowdfunding. So there was no crowdfunding mm-hmm. class. I was teaching filmmaking classes, like directing and writing and stuff like that. Variety of different classes. Um, I loved teaching storytelling and screenwriting. That was because that's my original forte. And, um, you know, it's just real, you know, great energy at the academy with the, with the students and the teachers were all bonded. And just we all like f- formed a really nice family. It was it was great. Uh, eventually, the with the advent of crowdfunding, um, you know, I got involved in it. Uh, Diane Baker used to run the program back in the day, in the film school back in the day, and uh, she encouraged me to make a class out of this, and I did, and that's the class you're talking about. So, about social media marketing for filmmakers, basically, but it applies to non-film people too. So, I, I taught a variety of classes there, but eventually, um, I managed, I did manage to get another feature off the ground, and so when that happened, that was back. There's a movie, The Outer Wild, and um, we filmed this. It was another subject to type approach. It was with Dean and Christian again, plus a few other people. And we wanted to say, you know what? Let's just go back to our roots. Let's just go make another movie. The same spirit. You know, it's just like, we're not going to be able to have everything figured out beforehand. We're just going to go find, this time we actually had investors. It was our own money. Yeah, so it's like, ooh. But it was still really tiny budget. But it was awesome that the investors really entrusted us with this. And um, we're just going to go into some remote location and we're going to go make a movie. So this time we're back in Colorado, ironically, uh, not by design. It just worked out that way. Uh, We made this post-apocalyptic Western about um, some strange event has happened, which is never explained, that basically has mutated mankind into these beasts and only affects men. And women just sort of disappear. They like ethereal, like just they're gone. So, um, and they're still sort of in this transition. It's been about a generation of this. And now there's one woman, uh, Laura is the character. She has what might be the cure in her blood. And, um, but rather than save people that don't deserve to be saved, she runs away. And she, she has to cross this outer wilderness where the beasts live in order to find a sanctuary on the other side. And so this is a story of her, you know, and ultimately we, found this remote location in Colorado on a ranch where we got a family to, you know, let us film on their ranch. And it was very diverse. There was a whole lot of different aspects of that ranch and stuff like that. So we shot it there in Colorado in the summer. So no snow. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it was, it was great. I mean, it was a brutal experience as all low budget productions are, and we're in the middle of nowhere. So our resources are even more capped than ever tough experience, but we had a great, you know, crew and, you know, um, you know, really great cast. And it just sort of got that one done. Now we didn't have the Sundance success with this, you know, but we did get distribution with it and it's available. Uh, it's out there. 
you know, uh, there's it's on Amazon Prime actually. I saw. There you go. <laughs> the, the Outer Wild, correct? Yep. yep. The Outer right. Wild. And so, um, but that, that all came about with the same group and the same spirit. Let's just figure it out as we go. We had our script, you know, but there were things that we could not do just because of resources and, and stuff like that. And, um, and ultimately uh, that same kind of chemistry that we bonded with on subject two, we wanted to have lightning strike twice. And so the Sundance lightning didn't hit, but we did manage to make a pretty, I think a pretty cool film and uh, get it out there and uh, get it distributed. So that was our next film. Hey, wonderful. And, and, and say so that was just a couple of years ago. What, what have you been up to since then? Well, with that, that, uh, that happened when I went off to go, I took time off Academy of Art to go shoot that movie. And when I came back, everything was different. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's a new director now and there's new classes and there's this whole new change going on. And it's all for the good. But ultimately I wound up teaching a lot of social media classes, which I always enjoyed teaching those classes, but I wasn't teaching the film classes that are really my heart. And then my son, who's in high school, in his high school, the film director there left. He retired. So the job opening happened. So ultimately, I had the opportunity to move, and I became the director of cinematic arts at Marin School of the Arts. And that's where I'm in the room right now, actually. This is, this is where I'm at. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. No, it's great. It's this four-year film program for high school, which is unheard yeah, of. Yeah, right? I was just saying, like, high school film director. I'm like, wait, that, that doesn't make sense to me out here in Utah. <laughs> right. It's not just a single class. It's four years with the same students. And we get to really spend time together. And, you know, as teenagers, learning how to, you know, learning how to make films and learning how to learn the visual language, that's one thing. But you know, they're young people, let alone young filmmakers. And it's like 14 to 18 year olds. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, uh, so that's just like the course of your life. If you've been able to, I mean, that. 14 years old, uh, I mean, Congo would just come out. I'd be like, Oh, this is, Congo! Where this is what I'm going to do. This is me. Apes <laughs> jumping in the lava streams. Those are right. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw that at theater. I'm like, I could do that. No, <laughs> You have a young Steve in your class. All right. I need a monkey suit and a martini glass. <laughs> yeah, right. That's awesome. No. <laughs> That's a great one. Could have changed the world. <laughs> Definitely would have yeah, had the sequel know, with Ernie Hudson and Laura Lenny. Like, what happened to right? them on that hot air balloon? I mean, right. they're going into like contested. You know, uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to give away my uh, my my future blockbuster. <laughs> here, but. Oh, that's right. Okay, all right. Well, secret safe with me. This epic screenplay. At, at least until we get investors. But <laughs> oh, I was just gonna. Ask, so, so what's that like with yeah, like ninth graders ma- making movies and you know writing them out and stuff like that? Like, well. It's fascinating because I mean, right now, as ninth graders, they don't do a whole lot of writing. You know, they just sort of go play. And you know, it's fascinating that I mean, I remember back when the Star Wars trilogy came out, and George Lucas is sort of pioneering digital filmmaking and stuff for the first time. That there was a whole lot of pushback against it. But one of the things he was saying, and I remember this from twenty so years ago, he was saying at some point there's going to be this little girl in Iowa with some kind of a camera and she's just going to go tell her stories. And that's where this industry is headed, where you could just shoot anything you want at any age. And sure enough, that's exactly what it is. And this is not only young people making movies, but they've been making movies since they were five. Not all of them. Some of them are just brand new. It's like, what's this movie thing? Cause it's not like in middle school and elementary, they don't teach film. They don't have video. It might be a random camera that they get to play with a little bit, but with your phones, everyone's got that. And, 
they're not even as, I mean, they're influenced as much as the opportunity to shoot as they are by YouTube or whatever, more so than movies, because they're, they're not necessarily a movie-going generation. They're a YouTube generation. So their, their inspiration is very different than people like, you know, you guys or a little older like for me or whatever. And it's like, when I grew up, it was no digital. There was no video. I mean, they, they had some video, I guess. But film was an elite place to go to, that you had to go past all these gatekeepers just to get equipment. Yeah, that's yeah. not the case anymore. And it, it changes. I mean, culture changes happen, you know, people evolve, technology evolves, all those kind of stuff. But the whole generation is entirely different than anything that like most film schools are geared towards. Because they geared like this, the way you do it, you do it this way, and you do it that way. And it's very stiff and very staid, but it's just not true anymore. And um, some, I'm sure some film schools are adapting really well to it, but others, I'm, I think, are really old and stuck in their ways about it has to be the Hollywood way or no way. And it's just not true anymore. I don't know. I, like you mentioned that, and it's like, uh, like with you know, coronavirus and everything, all the theaters having to shut down and stuff like that. And, you know, movies keep getting pushed back and pushed back. And it's like, well, there are all these other streaming things. Like, no, no, no. This is something that has to be experienced in a theater and blah, blah, blah. And that's... then that's how Trolls World Tour becomes the most watched movie of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating because obviously coronavirus, this whole thing um, and the social unrest that's happening too com yeah. combined. I mean, yeah, yeah. We all know we're at a tipping point of something, you know, yeah. um, but the literally when like, you know, when we were teaching last year, when shelter in place first happened, we all had to go online. And especially in high school, we're like, what are you doing? I can't elementary school did it as well. I can't imagine how they did it, but they did it. And I remember telling my students, it's like, you guys are old enough to know what life before coronavirus is. And this is back in March and April, so we didn't even know that we we're going to be stuck here six months later or whatever, four months later, you know, still dealing with it. But we knew it was bad. And inherently, just like 9-11 changed everything forever, mm -hmm. this changes everything forever, too. Absolutely. And now that we have the technology, whether it's Zoom like this, you know, or other just, you know, the ability to telecommute for any company, you know, um, the self-sufficiency that we all have just by necessity because we have to stay at home. You know, you see sports played without audiences. You know, there are no concerts anymore, you know? Yeah, um, oddly enough, that's what got us back into watching wrestling. WWE <laughs> I, is doing the I most amazing things. <laughs> yeah, like, WWE's Thunderdome that they've built. Oh, like, geez, they have a yeah. screen audience. They're pumping in the audio. It's whether or not you're into wrestling, like, check out what they're doing. It's are really, you gonna turn really me into a wrestling? You're going to turn me into a wrestling fan, aren't you? <laughs> hey, you get 30 days free on WW yeah. WWE now. <laughs> by the way, this interview is brought to you by WWE. <laughs> I, <laughs> wish, I wish. Are you ready to talk? <laughs> this movie's brought to us by our paychecks. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you, know, the, um, you know, I've been watching the NBA playoffs and the, um, you know, what they're doing in the bubble is great with the video screen. So I guess the wrestling is doing something similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 But, you know, it's just, you know, who knows where we're going to come out at the end of all this, especially with an election coming up as well. So whatever happens there, whatever happens with coronavirus, whatever happens with social unrest and just everything, nothing is escaping permanent change. Even, even like education where when we do eventually come back to school, eventually, 
and even after coronavirus is done, there's going to be some elements of remote learning that's going to permanently affect everything. Yeah, when it comes to filmmaking, you know, one, the actual production process of filmmaking with social distancing, I know people are doing it. I can't even fathom it. It's just, that's a whole different beast. But the distribution angle, you know, Netflix is the new super studio, you know, and you got Amazon Prime, you got some other streaming and stuff, but it's, um, it's just a different format of the same kind of studio controlled system. So I'm still a great proponent of self-distribution, but, you know, financially, you can't really make that work. You got to find the other ways to do that. Streaming, even if it's a great film, it's not the same as seeing it in a big theater. So like the Christopher Nolan thing with Tenet, you know, that is a big screen experience. Yeah, you can see it streaming eventually, but it's not going to be the same. I mean, that being said, like there's always going to be people who are going to, you know, stream it on their phone or their laptop. More and more, it's becoming more and more accessible to have a home theater. Like it's getting cheaper and cheaper. Sound bars are have amazing sound now, like way better than the surround sound system my dad hooked up, you know, in the early 90s. Yeah, certainly the development of home technology is great. But, you know, the idea of, and it's funny, when when I first heard years ago, when videos started happening on phones and stuff, mm-hmm. and somebody says, look, you can watch it on your phone. I'm like, I'm never going to watch something on the phone. The one thing that I noticed back then was like, when you're watching it, as small as this is, your focus is entirely especially if you've got audio, you know, buds in or whatever, your focus is entirely here. So there's still, you know, some distraction from whatever room you're in, but generally you're so focused and you're very close to the screen. So it's not the same dynamic as a giant Lawrence of Arabia on a screen, but you know, it does feel a lot bigger than it is. And and also when you see a giant screen, you're sitting much further away from it. You know, so yeah. it's proportionate to the size of the screen, depending on the kind of theater and stuff like that. So obviously a screen like on your phone from 20 feet away sucks. Yeah. But from, you know, six inches away, it's very close. <laughs> well, like in the theater, you have the distractions of like the guy that puts his feet up on the seat and the lady yelling at the screen saying, don't go in there. Yeah, the guy that's got the dog in his bag next to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm the guy with the feet up and my wife is screaming at the screen. Uh, we're, we're, we're the two people uh, going like, no, they're definitely not going to kill that character. Oh my God, they killed that character. <laughs> we're, we're the one uh, ones whispering jokes to one another and then laughing abruptly. Well, yeah, part of that, especially with certain films, I mean, you don't want to do that during, you know, heavy dramas, but, but you know, part of that's the fun there. of the movie. You know, Rocky Horror <laughs> Picture Show, for crying out loud, you know, yeah. or, or The Room or, you know, other of those participatory really? movies, that's all part of it. And I remember when I saw um, Paranormal Activity in the theater. Oh, yeah, yeah. And when I saw that, and it was a crowded, you know, it was opening weekend. It had all the buzz going on at the time. And I was sitting down, and there was this giant guy sitting right next to me. So I'm, like, squeezed, and I'm all irritated. But to this day, it was one of the most priceless moments. Because as, you know, physically uncomfortable, I adjusted, and I'm, like, adapting. And it was a fun movie. It was what it was. But there's a certain scare thing. He jumped so high with a screech, eek! Like, jumped literally out of his chair. And that was the funniest thing I've ever experienced in the movie there. Just watching this guy go. And you can't get that at home. (laughs) You know? And the community aspect really does help movies, especially horror movies and stuff like that. Thanks. Well, you've been peppering it throughout, but of course, the name of our podcast is Everything I Learned from Movies. Uh, Are there any other, like, bits of wisdom that you'd like to share with the audience or 
Um, I mean, since you've been spe uh, speckling it throughout, uh, any dream projects you got loaded up, ready for investors you want to throw out there? Well, I'm, I'm just going to bring it back to, I got a couple dream projects. One of them, I do want to make subject one. That would be awesome. You know, yeah. the prequel to subject two. But the other dream project is actually a feature version of my short Till Death. And that's what I'm working on right now. Oh, and wow. um, that that's a story about, I mean, Till Death is a story about a guy whose wife dies, but he's the one that decomposes. Oh, and it's like really it. creepy. That that was my Kickstarter project. You could actually Google and see the pitch for that. You know, and that was for a short film, but um, but I'm adapting it into a feature. And especially with the COVID angle, it's not about COVID at all. But you know, I'm incorporating that as part of the story, and it really adds a layer. You know, in this new world that we live in, it's just really astonishing. And so uh, I'm really looking forward to making that. And so I'm in the middle of writing that right now. I'm just sort of writing feverishly and um so and I'm a, dream ones oh sorry i was gonna say and if i'm an investor looking to reach out to you or follow you on social media and stuff where, where, where would that be at at p chidel at anyone twitter instagram facebook you could find me through any of those you know pete my my name philip just the p for phil uh, and then chidel and so just put instagram at p chidel send me a send me a note that way and Excellent. P is in Phil, Chidel, C-H-I-D-E-L, correct? That yes. is the one. Absolutely. So check the screen to make sure. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, and uh, Yeah, keep, keep us posted. We'll help with uh, promoting any future projects. And uh, let us know when the next, you know, 15-year-old Spielberg uh, walks through the door. And yeah, well, I've got a whole it. class of them. I'll be grooming them. <laughs> and uh you were talking about self-distribution and all that trying to figure it out i don't know are you familiar with the comedian christopher titus yeah he had a tv show on fox for during, in the early 2000s yep. um so he's been doing a podcast since then because he sort of messed up his relationship with the studios he goes into it more on his podcast As we are prone to do <laughs> exactly but um they've been self-producing his uh his comedy specials but the last two three of them yeah, yeah um and uh so like with the corona and everybody being in lockdown it's basically they they have like a little bubble and it's like his wife is his producer and they have like a tech guy who comes in um but they just recently did a the old Titus show, the one from the early 2000s, they did like a catch-up episode and it was the Titus Family Live. Um, and so they were able to get back some of the original actors and like, you know, have them like quarantine in the bubble, um, but including Stacey Keach. But Stacey Keach lives on the East Coast now and is in his 80s. So obviously can't. And the way they ended up incorporating him into the show was great. The, the dad on that is, you know, the super bad influence. And basically they had him in like, mexican prison calling on an ipad <laughs> that's great and so the whole episode they're like passing this ipad around <laughs> that's great so dad can yell at everybody um but it <laughs> just it was super super interesting way of like okay this is how you do it where people are doing it post corona and they the way they distributed it was they um they basically sold tickets online to a live youtube event like you pay your ticket price and they send you the link that's great you know um and it's interesting because that's a great example. And thanks for sharing that. I'm going to look it up. Yeah. Um, as far as um, always, limitations create invention. And, um, you know, and I think of the great story, everything you ever learned in film, here's a great story for you if you haven't heard this before. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Okay, that's a low budget film back in the day. And it takes place in the Middle Ages. It's the Holy Grail for crying out loud. So <laughs> they can't afford horses. 
So what are you going to do? How can you do a middle-aged story without horses? Well, eventually that led to the idea of one of the defining jokes of that movie, which is a guy going like this and someone running behind him with coconuts going, tuk, 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 tuk. and that, that was only because they didn't have the budget for horses. And oh, so, amazing. you know, and here technical limitations like zoom or whatever and shelter in place, people find solutions. And that is, that is what I, I love about film. It's just the innovation behind it. It might be creative, it might be technical, whatever the case might be. And these innovations have been happening ever since film was born back in 1900. The choices that we, you know, we haven't watched most of those silent films. Every now and then I go through a binge where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to go watch a bunch of old silent films because the choices that they make, not always, not a lot of them are crap, but you know, the choices they make frequently, especially the Buster Keaton's or Charlie Chaplin's or whatever, mm-hmm. they're so inventive that we forget that just because we have all the bells and whistles now, that doesn't mean that they didn't make their own bells and whistles back then. And that's, that's the kind of, uh, that's the thing that makes me thrilled with any kind of film stuff. I want to dive more into that. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, I'm, you, you were saying you thought we might be a different generation. Promise you were older than we look. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my parents were older when they had me and uh, my dad remembers silent films. And so I grew up watching a lot of silent, silent films on like with TMC on like Sunday mornings, they would have the whole, yeah, I grew up watching all of this. <laughs> this summer with Shelter in Place, I should have been writing till death because that was my goal, but I was just bent. I was just spent. I, I think I had that plague oh. type, like depression, whatever, but it was great. I used it well because I w- must have watched like 100 movies this summer. Like I would just watch so Research. many movies. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and yeah. teams, uh, you know, Turner Classic was like my thing. That was, I mean, I, I might as well just set my DVR 24 hours a day on TV. <laughs> Just constantly streaming. Totally, it was insane. Well, thank you, sir. We really, really appreciate talking with you. (laughs) Oh, thank you. No, this is fun. If you need uh, northern Utah shooting locations, oh yeah, yeah. keep Steve's email. Hit us up. We Uh, even have a ranch. Yes, Steve's family has an 800 acre ranch out on a Powder Mountain. All right. Well, you know, I'm very prone to take you up on that. So look out. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. We even have cows and horses. Well, mules. Mules, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Oh, that was the best. Phil's the greatest. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chedel. Oh, thank um, you so much. And to be fair, this is actually recorded a few days afterwards. And yes. we've seen now Subject 2 and The Outer Wild. Yeah. And guys, they're, they're pretty damn good. The highly, highly recommend. Subject 2 absolutely check it out streaming on amazon prime right now it's like you said said, a frankenstein story but with some weird twists and stuff going into it oh yeah and it's it's one of it's a oh my gosh what they did with such such a small like set (laughs) and when i say small set it's a huge outdoor wilderness but like the reality is everything happens in 200 square feet yeah yeah it's a cabin in the middle of the wilderness yeah uh, absolutely awesome and yeah, yeah outer wilds feel well they both feel like a like the best kind of outer limits show like yeah. episodes yeah yeah absolutely. like just the, the best of the best it's fantastic yeah uh so yeah check those out on amazon prime uh, babe are you on social media at all i am you can find me everywhere at untidy venus that's a goddess who's bad at housekeeping uh i'm over on my etsy shop guys i'm getting ready to launch kickstarter actually i think it might be going at the time of this release yeah, but yeah, yeah, let's yeah. Go yeah, so we got a Kickstarter going. We are, I'm finally turning my Snackosauruses into enamel pins, guys. Come yeah. on over, donate, get your Snackosaurus pins. It's going to be awesome. 
Yeah, and of course, uh, as you know, you can follow us at EILF Movies. That's everything, everything I learned from movies. movies on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep in touch. We got a lot of a lot of cool fun stuff coming up. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, until next time, I'm Steve, and I'm Izzy, and this is Everything, everything I Learned from movies. movies. Have a good night, everybody. Night, everybody. So where are you in? Are you in Salt Lake or where are you? Uh, no. but we're about an hour north of uh, Eden. Uh, it's like Eden. a little, yep. little up, up in the mountains from Ogden. Uh, we're like a, like a mountain range and a valley away from um, Park City. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Cool. So about a 40 minute drive or something like yeah. that is all. Yeah. <laughs> all right. We, we have to check out Sundance one of these years when, I know. You know, <laughs> when they're well. doing it. And, and talk about change. Who knows what that's going to be like? Like this January, they might even go virtual for all we know. I don't know. A, a lot of the film festivals and stuff I've been tracking, it's like, hey, we're going virtual now. And so it's like, you know, pay 20 bucks. You have access to all these movies. And I'm like, sold. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious to see what Sundance does with it. But, you know, it is what it is. So things happen. Yeah, yeah, we're right. even going to a, a virtual beer festival. Yeah. We paid Ooh. tickets, and um, it's actually the Great American Beer Festival, the big one they have in Colorado. And uh, so you buy your online tickets and you ac- access to all the, I guess, the virtual classes and the seminars and the lectures. But on top of that, they're going to email us, like, I think, like, two weeks or something right before the festival and tell us where to go pick up specific beers, like, in your state that they're going to be talking about. Nice. So that'll be interesting to see how it how they pull it off. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm really getting into like the virtual meetings and cons and stuff like that. Because it's like, if not just for the next couple of years, like it's going to be a major thing. But then it's one of those things where, well, wow, that actually went surprisingly well. Maybe we save a butt ton of money and just do it this way every year, you know, or a bunch <laughs> of manpower. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's like I said. Uh, Something like this is going to change a lot of things. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll see how it goes, I guess. <laughs> yeah, side note, Steve's job is remote, but for a hotel in San Francisco. And I'm still trying to be an artist. <laughs> so. yeah. What hotel in San Francisco? Yeah, That was my honeymoon hotel. That was the first, oh. our, our wedding night. Or our honeymoon was in Italy. But I mean, that was our wedding night was we went to the presidential suite up there. And then. Oh, we, nice. Beautiful. But it's funny, when I checked into the hotel earlier before the wedding, you know, because I just checked in early. I didn't plan for the presidential suite. I was like, I just booked a room. And they go, congratulations, your upgrade has been improved. I'm like, what? I requested an yeah. upgrade. And then they put me up there. I was like, yay. So it was probably just open and they knew I was getting married. So Yeah, yeah that's exactly. It. Whenever we see like there's a little, all right, what do we have? Like, Because <laughs> we'll usually put you up in like the best room that, you know, we have. Like if lady gaga's in the presidential suite it's not like all right toots you're getting a king bedroom and we're moving them up but but if it's like oh a one-bedroom suite yeah totally yeah it's kind of part of your job yeah yeah it's so anyway sorry downer right there. <laughs> yay coronavirus yay. 2020 oh. yeah all right we're gonna stop this we're gonna relax we've i've got this movie the stand oh babe, Ooh, no. yeah well that's that's a documentary now so yeah yeah <laughs> No, we were talking about is it outbreak or yeah outbreak where we were talking about uh the first, when we watched it in like the 90s we're like oh nobody's the stupid. stupid now rewatching it we're like hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
You know, these are some yeah. of the more intelligent people. There's there's no way a guy's just going to reach into a spinning centrifuge and just, you start the spread. And, <laughs> I mean, who knew it'd be like people just didn't want to wear the mask. And it's like, that, that's up there with like the old lady in uh, Dante's Peak just jumping into the acid lake. Oh, I, th- I think about that scene a lot. And <laughs> yeah, it's like you just jumped into what are you, idiot? <laughs> what's what, what's the point of that? <laughs> and then the dog survived. The, you know, yeah, the dog. Well, you can't kill the dog. Obviously, that's... that's the rule of filmmaking. That's when you lose the audience. I know, apparently. Except in I Am Legend, the most dramatic scene was when the dog died. Yeah, nobody oh. likes that movie. Right. Oh, the, right. Dog, the dog even had my, the name of my dog growing up, Sam. And I was like, no, don't you. Don't you, Sam. <laughs> He grew up with police German shepherds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was all the feels. Yeah, <laughs> all the feels. When I first heard the name Sam, I'm like, "All right, this is a uh, this is this isn't going to be good." And that scene came up. It's like, "You son of a bitch!" I hope the zombies get you now. <laughs> That's funny because, like, you know, I'm writing till death now, and the original, uh, the name of the uh, the wife who winds up dying and stuff. Whoops, spoiler, sorry. Her name's Karen, but I realize, like in this day and age, I can't call her Karen. Yeah, <laughs> now, now it's got to be like Kara or something. <laughs> Karen with the C. No, it doesn't matter. It's, it's yeah. a Karen. So I'm changing the name of her character just because people suck. Or, or play it <laughs> I'm up. Changing and it make... to Ivanka. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> or play it up and have her be a Karen, do the full Karen haircut. Yeah. And... Oh, totally, I could do that. But then, but we want to like her. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's a downside, right? Right, right. But at least the, the male character is not named Chad. You know, Chad and Karen. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Karen and Chad, the tenderest, sweetest couple. Right. Anyway. <laughs> right well, thank you very much. Yeah, for, thank you so much. Reach out yeah. anything else. I'm happy to chat more because I'd like to chat.